Well, good morning to each of you. It's uh, really good to be here and to see all of you. And thank you, uh, Brother David, for your introduction. I do feel very much at home here, and it's a blessing. Um, <clears throat> this morning, I would like for us to, to think about um, church. And, and what is church? What is a, when, when someone mentions church to you, what, um, what do you think of? Is it uh, this building, this brick building? Is that the church? Um, well, if you, if you say you're going to church, that's probably what you mean. You're coming here. Um, is the church um, bigger than that? Is it... Um, is it the conference? Is it Southeastern Mennonite Conference? Is that the church? Uh, or are you part of the big Mennonite church? Uh, what exactly is church? If, um, if the building were, were to burn down or the floor fell through, uh, would you still have church? Uh, would there still be a church? If, um, if Brother Josh and, and Danny and David and Nathan were all arrested and put in prison, would you still have church? Would there be a church? So if, um, if someone were to ask you when, say, you're at work, and, uh, and someone asks you, uh, where, where do you go to church? Um you probably would say you that church down on uh, Wolf Trap Road. So is, is that the church? Well, let me ask you this, then, if, if that same person then, um, if they've never been here and they didn't know anything about this building and where it was located, um, what would they learn about your church? You see, they would see you, and they're going to draw some conclusions about your church based upon what they see in you, because you see, we would conclude that the church, and, and we're going to see this here in a moment in scripture, that the church is made up of people. That's really what the church is. Now, obviously, the church is a building, too. We call it a church, and that's fine. That's okay. But the real church is made up of people. And it's, it's not Brother Josh's church. Um, it's not Brother Dan's church. It's, not, uh, it's really not uh, the Southeastern Mennonite Conference. It's, it's every person who identifies here is what makes up the church. And so um, say you, you decide to go and those of you who are members here, at some point you decided to be a part of this church. And, and perhaps you, you thought, you know, I don't know what your perception was, but obviously you, you liked what you saw. And so you became a part of the church. And once you did that, then you become part of that. And you bring to that church uh, part of the shape and, and, and the perception that everyone else has of that church. 
You see, we can't just join a church and, and, and just associate with it and say, I like that church, so I want to be a part of it. That becomes you. And so you become the church because you're a person in that church. And so what you do and how you act and how you conduct yourself is going to be the perception that everyone else is going to see and they're going to draw conclusions about that church. And so the question really is, what, what is the church and what do people see? Uh, turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Uh, Titus is a just a little short book. It's a letter that Paul wrote um, uh, to Titus. Titus was a, um, a pastor in Crete. And, um, and apparently he's a young man. And Paul is wanting to encourage him about, um, well, you guessed it, church. And how church works. And how it, how it functions. And, and the perception that people see about church and what it is and, and how it all works. <clears throat> um, and by the way, I, I love our church and I love your church. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a place where people can grow and be nourished and, and uh, it can be a, a drawing card for others so that they too can experience what you have experienced in in your Christian life. That's what church really is and what it should be and, and how it works uh, when we interact with other people. Um, that's fine to have a building. At Caswell, we don't have one yet, uh, but we still have church. Um, and, um, and But, you know, it'd be nice to, to have a, a church building. But that's not really the church. So Paul is writing uh, this letter to... Uh, Titus, who's a young minister, and um, he's giving him what I would say instructions on, on, on what's going to become a good and solid church. And whenever I do these little, little book studies, I, you know, I want to make them relevant to us today. Uh, Paul wrote this letter many, many years ago, but it's, there's many things in there that are very relevant to us and, and how we live and conduct ourselves. And so uh, it doesn't matter if, if you're young, you're old, or you're somewhere in between, and wherever you want to fit yourself in, you are part of that church. And he's got some very specific things to say uh, here in this uh, Passage. We're going to look at chapter 2. Now, chapter 1 uh, primarily deals with the leaders. So he is addressing Titus as a church leader, and he gives him some very uh, specific things uh, for elders and, and, um, and their responsibilities. But then he comes to chapter 2, and he gets quite specific. Let me just read uh, chapter 2 at this time. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, 
obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleased, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous of good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Well, it gets uh, pretty specific about the church, and the people that make up the church. Um, <clears throat> he was dealing with um, quite a variety of, of people. And, um, and it, in fact, back in uh, chapter 1, these Cretans had quite a reputation. Verse 12, it said, uh, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's quite a commentary um, and to come from Paul, you know, to him. And, uh, but that's, that's the way it was. So they, he, was, he had his hands full, you would say. He had uh, quite some uh, challenges before him to deal with these people. But Paul has given him some clear instructions and not just to Titus, but it's also to all of us. Every man, woman, and child, young or old, we all have responsibilities to make the church a church. And um, so I want to look at, at some of these, and then we'll talk about um, a few things there in the latter part of this chapter. And so he, he um, addresses four basic groups that we find in, in, in our church family, and that is uh, the older men, the older women, the younger women, and the younger men. So you can pretty much put yourself in one of those categories. If, if you're like me, you're kind of in between, unless you ask my children. They said, I'm already over in the older section. Um, but we can fit ourselves in there. And these, these attributes are so relevant. And I just want to look at these. I'm not going to spend just a whole lot of time on this uh, because there's some other things that, that I want to notice. <clears throat> but the older men is whom he addresses first in, first in verse 2. They are to be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. You know, I always look to older men, and I think we all should, that, you know, they're the, they're the ones that are are steadfast. 
they're the ones that have, have been around the block, so to speak. They've experienced many things that younger ones have not. And so it's important that, that younger people respect that and respect that, um, that seniority um, and not just the, the fact that they're older, but it's because they, they know some things that we don't know. Uh, they have experienced things that maybe we've never gone through yet. And they've learned some lessons. And so there's always wisdom to be learned from older people. Now, granted, sometimes as people grow older, um, their thought processes start to slow down and maybe they can't express themselves quite like they used to. Uh, but that's okay. We need to be respectful of them and learn what we can from them as long as we can. Um, the older men, you older men, are to be that example of steadfastness, of, of that, that soundness. In other words, not being easily shaken by everything that happens. You know, perhaps there's a, a tragedy that happens in your congregation. Um, we need those older people to help stabilize that situation and and where others that are that don't know what to do and don't know where to turn, they can go and talk to someone who maybe has experienced it and can bring a level of, of soundness and stability to help guide us through a difficult situation. That's what older people can bring um, to a situation, to a um, into a group of people. Um, I have heard of, of some of these churches that um, were made up of primarily all young people. Um, and this probably still happens a good bit. And many of those churches, they don't survive. They don't survive um, time. And, and some of those that I've heard about, they no longer exist. And probably because they didn't have that stability of older people to guide them through uh, some of the things that, that people face in life. Uh, older men are, are, should not be um, you know, easily moved and shaken by the events of life because they've experienced it. And so we need to look up to you, and, and younger people must do that as well, uh, to look to them to, as examples. Um, also, I, just, I notice here in the last part of verse 2, it they are to be uh, sound in the faith, in love, and in patience. So that soundness has many different attributes. Uh, being, being stable in your faith, what you believe. Uh, you're not easily shaken. You're not swayed by every little thing that comes along. But you have that stability and also in your love and your patience. And that's a beautiful thing when it comes to working with, with other people and, and your church family is, is to have that stability, to love even in spite of the, the crazy things that young people may get themselves into and the situations they may get into and say, well, you should have seen that coming, but to be patient and to love them and to guide them through that. That's what older men can do. 
Next, he mentions the older women, verse 3. The older women likewise, so you have some of those very same attributes, likewise, they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. And so, pardon me. They have that quality of of stability as well. Um, They are what I see here being self-controlled, not given to much wine. Now, we pretty much draw the line pretty tight on that one. However, I had a grandmother that that kept a bottle for medicinal purposes in her medicine cabinet, and us boys would tease her about it, and she didn't like that too well. Um, But she didn't let it control her. And so you are to be self-controlled, and not just that, but in every area of life. And that becomes an example to younger women. When you exercise self-control, you have your life uh, pretty well in grips. And, And things don't rattle you and shake you so much as they would younger people. Um... Now, older women usually, uh, typically, do not have children at home. Uh, if you had a family, they've, they've grown, they've moved on, married, whatever. And, um, and so you have more time on your hands, perhaps, to do other things. You're not so strapped to the duties of, of housework like it was when you had a house full of children. And so you have opportunity to... Uh, to teach and and to share with others, especially the younger women. And that's where he leads to then in verse 4, that they, speaking of the older women, <clears throat> admonish the young women. And so you have a real uh, responsibility to, um, to share with the younger women and, and, and to, to teach them and to admonish them as they face the same things that you did. And so that that, uh, helps us to transfer right into the younger women. What are the younger women to do? Verse 4, to love their husbands, to love their children, uh, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Well, it's quite a list uh, for the younger women. Uh, keepers at home, uh, family-oriented. Um, you know, the the women's liberation movement began probably back in the, I don't know, 1960s. Um, and, you know, I think it has, we don't see that quite as much, but it's in, intensified in the in the fact that I think society has just become inclusive to all persuasions um, that are unbiblical. Any kind of idea that comes up, we're just to be inclusive in, in all of that. And you know, I think now more than ever, uh, we need, especially women, young women here, to uphold biblical teachings and to follow the patterns that, that Paul is teaching in not just this letter, but, but many other letters that he wrote. <clears throat> and to, to let the world see 
to hold up your banner that you're, you are, uh, that, that this is what you're following. And, and, and you're not ashamed of it, of these biblical principles that God has called you to be, to be a homemaker, a keeper at home, to love your husband, to be uh, submissive to him. You know, we can get ourselves in trouble. You start talking about that in the world today. But that's what the Bible teaches, and we need to uphold that and show the world that it works. And this is what God wants. And, and we need women that, that do that and, um, and to show how important that role in the family and in the church is to be submissive. He goes on there in verse 5, to be discreet chaste. Uh, in other words, handling yourself with, uh, with femininity and, and, and appropriateness in public. It's such a beautiful thing when, when that is done. Um, to be homemakers and obedient, there is nothing demeaning about fulfilling this role, what God has outlined. It is designed by God. In fact, Notice the last part of verse 5. He said, so that the word of God be not blasphemed. You see, if we fail to do that, it's, it's blasphemous against God. Because it's part of the structure that he created and designed for families to work. And so let's not follow after the world's teachings and their pursuits of, of all of this equality. Uh, there is equality. And, but it's different. It's just simply different roles, and you have a role to fulfill that men can't do, and we have a role that you can't do. And when we work together, it's it's a beautiful picture of what God has has designed and ordained. Uh, what a challenge, uh, especially today. And now he goes to young men uh, to be a. Um, Verse 6, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. A sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. <clears throat> um, you know, I'm, I, I like a good joke. And I like humor, and, and I like to laugh, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but this idea of being sober-minded, I get the picture that, you know, as a young man, you need to think seriously about life. Uh, you need to, you can have fun with it, but, but think seriously about your life. And in, 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 your, in your teenage years, it's a time to be, you know, you're, you're thinking forward of your future and what God has for you and and think seriously about that. What does God want you to do in life? And begin to pursue God and read his word and study and, and be serious about it. Because life is serious. But we can have fun while we're doing it. But be sober-minded in, um, in that pursuit. You have, you have energy. You have drive. And, and that's what God needs. He needs the, the church needs people with energy. And a drive to make things happen and to have new ideas and, and, um, and, and that energy to, to pursue uh, what God has for us and what he teaches in, in his word. <clears throat> he, 
And so he says a pattern of good works. That to me is, is good habits. Good habits of, of study and putting yourself into the word of God and learning and growing and, and putting yourself into the church work. Um, when you're asked to do something, it can be kind of scary, but just put yourself into it and do it. Now, that's a pattern of good works. Um, he also says, just wanted to highlight this one, in doctrine, what is doctrine anyway? Doctrine is, is simply the truths in God's word, those unchanging truths in God's word. We want to follow doctrine. Uh, that's, that's important. And so in following that doctrine, he says, with integrity and reverence. Uh, in other words, um, be, be reverent and, and truthful to that. Let, let that, that the truths of God's word guide your life. And not let everything else happen guide your life. Don't let peer pressure and, and everything you see on Facebook and whatever, you know, let, let the truth of God's word guide your life and determine the decisions that you make. Amen. Let, that, let that be the, the drive that uh, um, helps you grow and become what God wants you to do and to be. <clears throat> and then he talks here about uh, servants. We didn't, uh, I didn't mention that in the beginning, but uh, we'd probably say today employees. We don't have slaves. Um, but if you work for a boss, you're, a, you're an employee. If you're an employer, then, then you have people working for you. Uh, he says to these um, servants to be obedient to their masters. To be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering. Uh, the New King James uses that word. But showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Uh, what does it take to be a good, a good employee? Uh, well, uh, employers are looking for people who are honest, have integrity. Uh, that they can leave them alone and know that things are going to be okay. They can walk away and turn their back and know that, that that employee wants his boss to look good. Okay, that's what a good employee does. He wants to make his employer look good. And so he doesn't pilfer. Um, he doesn't uh, slander. He doesn't talk bad about him. It doesn't mean that you can't have some good conversations sometimes about how things maybe ought to be. Um, but, uh, you know, pilfering is a, is a huge problem. I had a friend of mine that uh, worked as a um, uh, loss prevention officer at Walmart as years ago. And you know what he told me? He said one of the, the biggest uh, group of people that they target on loss prevention, it's not customers, but it's employees. And that's who they're trying to catch is the employees that are pilfering stuff. It's so easy for them in a big place like that. They can slip things to the side and get it out the back door. And so that was their biggest target. Pilfering is a huge thing. And, um, you know, as a, as a good servant, as a good employee, you, have, you need to have that kind of integrity that your employer doesn't have to worry about that. Because you see, they're, if they're looking at you and you're part of what? The church. And they see you as that church. That's who, they don't see the brick 
down here on Wolf Trap Road. They see you and how you act and how you respond in, in all of your business dealings and the things you do. You are part of the church. <clears throat> and how you behave and conduct your life is what uh, the church is going to become eventually. <clears throat> I wanted to mention something about this word. Um, uh, he uses the word fidelity here <clears throat> um, in verse 10. Uh, showing good fidelity. Uh, a lot of banks like to use that term in their name, fidelity bank. Um, um, fidelity simply means um, assurance or honesty. And so the bank wants you to think of them as being honest and and you can rest assured that they're going to take good care of the funds that you put there that's that's fidelity and so we can relate that to your own life as an as an employee uh, that you have good fidelity that the boss can trust you and he's put some interest in you and and that it's going to return well because you're going to take good care of it that's fidelity. The latter part of this chapter, then verses 11 to 15, uh, really to me kind of answers the question why we do these things. And I want to, to explore this here briefly as to why we, why we do these things. And if we just do these things, is that enough? Um, <clears throat> now many uh, denominations differ in their approach to salvation and, and how we are saved. And people have, have studied this, Bible scholars have studied this, the fact that there's a term for this, it's called soteriology. Um, <clears throat> if you don't know what that word means, I'll try to explain it to you, because I didn't know what it meant here until just recent past. Um, soter, I think is a Latin word, or soterion, is the, the root word, which basically means salvation. Um, or, uh, so, so ter is savior. You know, our savior brings salvation, so that's the root word. Uh, and, and whenever you have ology on the end of a word, that means the study of. And so it is the study of salvation, or you could say salvationology is what soteriology is. <clears throat> and so it is the study of of how we are saved. So what is the process um, of how we are saved? And so as you might expect, that can become quite controversial, especially among different, differing denominations. And I'm not prepared here to give you an in-depth analysis of, of how everybody approaches that or even how Anabaptists have approached it. But I think I do understand what our approach to soteriology is, what, what it is for us. <clears throat> Because I believe in these verses, right here beginning of verse 11, we have soteriology. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So let me just outline this for you. Number one, soteriology is that salvation comes from the grace of God. Uh, it doesn't come anywhere else. It is the, it is the grace of God that, that brings salvation. He could have withheld that and we'd all be condemned to die. Um, and there's nothing we could, could have done. Uh, by the way, 
we sang a chorus, and, and no reflection on you, Brother Rollin, but it's not quite exactly correct um, when he says that uh, he took my place on Calvary, now I don't have to go. If you did go, it wouldn't have done you any good. And so um, it's, it is the grace of God that brings salvation. Uh, secondly, that grace appeared to all men. Some people say there's only a select few that can be saved. Well, that's not biblical. He said it appeared to all men. We believe that every man can be saved and experience uh, the grace of God and the salvation. Number three, that the grace teaches us Two things about Christian life. Number one is that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts or affection. That's, that's part of our salvation experience is denying that sinful life. We deny it, we push it away, we reject it. And all of the worldly lusts and affections. And secondly, that in... Um, on top of that, we live soberly, righteously in this present time, today. It's not just something that you did. You make a decision to follow Christ and then it's all over and you're saved and you go live life however you want. We don't believe that. We believe that you have to deny ungodliness and change your life. And you redirect your life and you begin to live soberly and righteously in the present time that you live now. <clears throat> and so it teaches a separation and a godly life. Uh, number four, that we live in expectation of Jesus' return. You see, we're, we're pursuing towards a goal because we know that Jesus said that I will come again. And he's coming back. Acts 1.11, uh, John 14.3 said, I will come again. And receive you unto myself. And so we live with that expectation that he's coming back. And so, you know, how do we live now with that expectation? You see, that has to change the way you live. That has to change the way you, you live your life and conduct your daily life um, with that expectation. And then fifthly, that Jesus is the agent of our salvation. He is the one that made it possible uh, we couldn't do anything about it. It had to be um, a redeemer. There had to be a, a sacrificial lamb to make it happen. <clears throat> and so Jesus became that agent of our salvation. He's the one who redeemed his chosen special people. And, um, and so that special people are those who believe in him, who accept that gift, who accept the grace of God. We become that chosen people and that we too become zealous of good works. That's what he says here in verse 14. Uh, his own special people zealous of good works. And so it's not just a one-time thing, but it is a process. Yes, we can, we, we can probably all identify that one moment when we gave our heart to Christ. But that was just the beginning of a process of a life that is filled with the Spirit where we are denying ourselves, uh, putting away the worldly lusts and all, of, all that goes with that. And we are now zealous of good works. We, 
We're like that employee who wants to make his boss look good. You see, we want to make that, uh, we want him to be pleased with us. And that's the zeal and that's the drive and that's why we do it. <clears throat> and so, <clears throat> in a nutshell, I guess this is, this is what I believe about soteriology, or this is my soteriology. <clears throat> that scripture is clear that our good works do not save us. Uh, there's, we can't go out here and just, you know, do all these good things and it's going to bring me rewards and, and somehow God's got to smile on me because I did all these great things. <clears throat> uh, that's not what I see in scripture. However, we are redeemed and we're chosen and we're created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That comes from Ephesians 2.10. We are redeemed and created unto good works. And so there has to be something to follow. When we have that change, that there, there's going to be some kind of result. There's going to be something that, that happens in our life to produce uh, something to show that that's who we are. And, and that's what people are going to see. And that's what they see when they see you. They're going to see that church. <clears throat> um, further, uh, we cannot deny ungodliness and worldly affections and all of those longings for the world apart from that redeemed life in Jesus Christ. That has to take place. Or we, we're, we're going to fail. We're not going to survive if we have not experienced that, that life-changing redemption that Jesus Christ brings into our life, that has to happen. That is absolute key. And so that should be the, the most important thing that we, as a church, uh, should pursue. When we want to reach out to other people, we need to lead them, first of all, into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything else is going to fail. We could reform people. You could make people change the way they look and tell them they shouldn't go here, they shouldn't go there, uh, they shouldn't smoke cigarettes, they shouldn't do all these things. None of that is going to make any difference unless they have a change of heart. Unless they have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. So we must have that as our goal and our purpose to lead them into that, that relationship. Unfortunately, uh, that concept has been promoted, especially maybe more among some conservative groups that I've seen, that you need to change your ways. You need to change what you're doing. You shouldn't be doing that, and you should be doing this. And, you know, you need to obey the doctrines. You need to obey the church. You need to live soberly and righteously. And all those things are right. But they have to have that relationship with Jesus Christ must come first. So until we experience... That transformation that we see in Romans 12, 2, be uh, transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the transformation process. Until we experience that, we will never have victory over sin and self. But when we are transformed, then we become his own special people. That's what he said here 
in verse 14. We become his own special people, zealous of good works. And that, that zeal, you see, is the key. That's, that, that's what makes it happen. That's what makes it effective. A Christian life is meaningless and, and meaningless to everyone else unless they see that zeal within us and that desire that we want them to have what we have. And we want to show them how to get it. And the proper way to show them how to get it is to lead them to a right relationship with Jesus Christ first. And then they begin to grow and they can grow in their walk and they can begin to understand these things and the, and the, the doctrines of the Bible. We don't have to be scared of those big things. It's all part of, of learning and understanding the truth of God's word and how it applies in my life, how it works. And then once we become his child, we understand the extent of our salvation. We understand what it took to, that for the fact that we are redeemed. And that's what drives the zeal that comes. We want to make our boss look good. We want to have, have our heavenly father uh, magnified and glorified so that people are, are pointed to him and not us and not necessarily a church or church building and, and all of those things. We want them to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and to grow in their walk with him. When we realize what we have been saved from, there's, there's no better motivation than that to share with other people that they too can experience it and they can live a life, a Christian life that is zealous of good works. May the Lord bless you. Shall we have a song?